I have a question for you this morning. What do you think it would be like if you went out on the streets after church today? I imagine maybe down in Grafton or even downtown here in Port Washington where a lot of people are out shopping. And you ask them this question. If you ask them, what do you think was the purpose of Jesus in his life? What was Jesus' purpose in life? I think since we're only a week and a half away from Christmas, I think you could probably preface the question in a way that would make it not too much of a shock to people. But what do you think people would say if you ask them, what do you think Jesus' purpose in life was? I think probably you get a wide variety of responses. But based on my experience of asking questions similar to this to people throughout the years, I think that most of the responses would fall into one of four main categories. First of all, I think you'd get a lot of people who would say, no, that's a good question, but I really don't know. Uh, they, they feel like they weren't qualified or, or weren't informed enough to answer that question uh, with any sort of confidence. So they'd say, I'm not really sure. I think a second category of people, which is probably the, uh, the most common answer, would say, well, I think Jesus was trying to teach us to love each other, to accept each other as we are and not to cast judgment on people. I think that would be the most common response that you would hear. I think there's a third category of responses in which people, especially if they have a significant background in church, would say something about Jesus' death on the cross being central to his purpose in life. And then I think there's a fourth category of responses that would be kind of those, those off-the-wall, unorthodox responses, which may be influenced by some TV documentary that they saw or perhaps some book that they read. Um, but I think those are probably the four main categories of responses you would get if you ask people to describe what they think Jesus' purpose in life was. Now, an example of this latter, um, this latter category uh, in terms of kind of an off-the-wall response influenced by a book might be something from the book Zealot. This is a book that just came out a few months ago and it quickly skyrocketed to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And really, if you trace back the reason why it became so popular so quickly, a lot of people who are familiar with its rise point to a particular interview with Fox News that the author had. And I would say that the interviewer with Fox News didn't exactly handle the interview all that well. It was done in a very controversial uh, way. And video of this interview went viral around the Internet in just the period of, of a few days. And it gained this book a lot of notoriety. Now, the main premise of this book is that Jesus' purpose in life was not to save people from their sins, that his purpose in life was not to try to be any sort of religious teacher at all. This book tries to make the point that Jesus was a political rebel. That was what he was really up to. He was a revolutionary, uh, uh, so zealous for the nation of Israel that he wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. That's really the main premise that this author is trying to put forth. Now, when I read the book, I read it because, you know, it's one of those books that a lot of people out there are reading and I wanted to educate myself. I honestly wasn't very impressed with the research that, that this book is supposedly based on. The author's background, in fact, is in creative writing. I mean, he has several other types of degrees, but even currently he is a college professor teaching creative writing. And you can see that come through in how he writes this. I feel like it's more of a speculative novel than a piece of solid historical research, even though it, it is in the nonfiction section and attempts to present itself as research. Now it's no, no longer on the bestseller list anymore. It's dropped off there, but we certainly have not heard the last of this book. 
because I found out just this week uh, the rights for this book were purchased by a company that makes movies and it will soon be made into a major motion picture. And so we haven't heard the end of this book and we also have to recognize that, that things like this, whether we like it or not, really do influence people's opinions of spiritual matters including who Jesus is. So we come back to the question of what was Jesus' purpose in life? And to me, when I think of Jesus' purpose, if, if his purpose is merely to be some sort of political revolutionary, or if his purpose in life was merely to be a, a compassionate religious teacher, honestly, I'm not all that interested in making such a big deal about Jesus. I mean, there are a lot of great people in this world. I even think of Nelson Mandela and how he passed away recently. And um, I was reading Sports Illustrated, and they just had all these pictures of all these different sports stadiums and sporting events where they were honoring Nelson Mandela, a great man in many different ways. There have been a lot of great people down through history. But why do we make such a big deal about Jesus? If Jesus, again, was just a revolutionary or a teacher and that was it, I'm really not all that interested in making such a big deal about him. So if we want to discern what was Jesus' purpose in life, where should we start? Well, I think there are a lot of different places we could look, but I think a great place to start is simply with the name of Jesus. Because Jesus' name was very significant. And that's what we're going to look at today. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1. If you didn't bring a Bible but would like to follow along, you can grab one from the pew or the chair in front of you. We are in Matthew 1 uh, right now uh, in the second week of our Christmas Defined series. And in this series, what we're doing each week is taking one key word that, that comes from Scripture uh, that, that describes a different angle of the Christmas story. And as we look at each of these key words each week, we are seeking to understand the story of Jesus' birth from a very fresh and powerful and true perspective. And, and last week we looked at the, the word fullness in terms of in the fullness of time, God sent his son to this world. And today we're looking specifically at that name of Jesus because the name Jesus is very significant in and of itself. Now, before each sermon in this series, there's this one-minute video that plays previewing the sermon. It's the same video every week, but I want to encourage you not to tune out in the video, but to really watch it closely because the video is not just some nice little feel-good video. It's a video that really pictures uh, the themes in the series. Every word in that video is tied in with one of the key words that we are looking at in the series. And there's scripture across the bottom of the screen throughout the video. And each one of those scriptures is one of the scriptures we're looking at in this series. So I want to encourage you next time you see it to watch closely because it is really a great picture of how you could define the significance of Christmas from a biblical perspective. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to dig into the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus, today uh, we are here to remember your birth, to celebrate the significance of you coming to this world. And I recognize that, that the story around you coming to this world is a very familiar story to many of us. I mean, pretty much every American has heard at least some part of it. Pretty much everyone would attribute uh, part of the significance of Christmas to Christ's birth. But Lord, today as we come to Scripture, I pray that you will help us to see with fresh eyes and fresh ears and a fresh heart what the reason was for why you came to this earth. Uh, please, Lord, be our teacher today through your spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 to set the context. Matthew writes, 
This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So we see this story starts out with an unexpected pregnancy. Mary is pregnant, but she is not pregnant in any ordinary or natural way. We see here very clearly that, that the Holy Spirit is the one who caused Mary to be pregnant. We see it in the second half of verse 18 when it says that she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, this seems like a pretty amazing, perhaps far-fetched type of idea that, that Mary could become pregnant without a guy being involved in it. But we have to remember who God is. For instance, think back to Genesis chapter 1, when God created the entire universe from absolutely nothing. I mean, there are a lot of creative people in this world who can make a lot of really cool and amazing things. But every single human being, no matter how creative they are, is always working with resources that already exist. But God created this entire universe from absolutely nothing. And compared with, with um, that, conceiving a child in, in a woman's womb without a man being involved isn't all that far-fetched when you consider who God is and what he has already done in creating this world. So, so for God, it, was, it wasn't that hard of a thing to do this. But for Joseph... Mary's fiance, this was quite a surprise. I mean, you think about it. He, he would suddenly discover Mary's pregnant, and he knew full well that, that he had nothing to do with that. And so it would have been quite shocking uh, for Joseph to discover this. And I think about back when I was engaged to Shelley, what it would have been like to find out that she was pregnant. I would know that I had nothing to do with it, and so, I mean, you can just kind of put two and two together and figure out, okay, must have been some other guy out there. And it would be absolutely devastating because I thought I knew her. I, I, would, I thought that I wanted to spend my life with her. That I trusted her, but, but I would feel this deep sense of betrayal because I'd recognize, you know, she's been with some other guy. I, I didn't have anything to do with that. Now, thankfully, that didn't happen in our case. But for Joseph, I imagine these were some of the thoughts going through his mind, a sense of shame, a sense of anger, a sense of disgrace. Because that's just a natural response. Now, Scripture does say that he was a righteous man. Uh, this idea of being righteous means that he was faithful to follow the Jewish law. And he was going to divorce her quietly. I mean, that shows that he was not vindictive. He was rather gracious. He didn't want to expose her to further public shame than she was already going to experience. But he was still going to end that relationship because evidently she had betrayed him. Now, you may be wondering, okay, they were just engaged. Why are they getting a divorce if they're just engaged at this point? But we need to recognize that the marriage and, and the process of getting marriage is different back then than it is today. Back then in ancient Israel, engagement was a legal commitment. And the only way to undo an engagement would be to get a legal divorce. And so that was what Joseph had in mind to do until an angel appeared to him in a dream with a specific message. 
Now, you may be thinking with this too. Okay, I don't ever recall seeing an angel in a dream. Or at least if I did, I didn't actually believe that God was trying to say something to me. But, but this is put in Scripture as if this is something really, really important and true that God was actually doing here. So what's, what's going on here? Well, I think we need to recognize that, that this, this idea of God appearing to people in their dreams, whether through visions or through the form of an angel or whatever, it, it's quite common throughout Scripture. And it's actually still quite common today. I have a number of friends who are missionaries in various parts of the world. Uh, and, and I think of the, those who are missionaries in places like the Middle East or like China, places where people are not all that familiar with Jesus. And these friends who are missionaries, who I, I've known for years, who I deeply trust, they tell me stories about people they know from these countries who may have never even heard of Jesus at all before, never even heard that name. And suddenly they have this dream about Jesus. Perhaps it's Jesus dying on the cross. Perhaps it's, it's God saying something to them. And, and this experience in their dream transforms their life. They fully believe that God is speaking to them. And, and, and the story is coming from friends that I trust uh, with personal acquaintances that they know. Or just even this last week, I was reading a story about a journalist named Kirsten Powers. If you don't know that name, she is a relatively well-known journalist with the New York Times and Newsweek. Uh, she was a diehard atheist and agnostic through much of her life. She, was, um, she wasn't just indifferent about Christianity. She was strongly opposed to Christianity. She wanted nothing to do with things of Jesus. But then as she was just going about her work, she um, became friends with some Christians who began to have an influence in her life. Now, at first, she didn't like the influence, but, but over time, uh, the ideas of Christianity became more plausible in her mind. And she tells a story from her own words in this article I was reading. She tells a story about how one time she had a dream where she believes that, that Jesus was actually speaking to her. Now, this may sound far-fetched to us. I imagine that if she heard someone else saying that just a few years ago, she would completely ridicule them. She would mock them. But now she has, her life has completely turned around, and she points to a big part of that being not just the Christian friends in her life who, who've pointed her to Christ and, and given a reasonable understanding of the Christian faith, but she points to that dream. And so I think we need to give the benefit of the doubt in these things and recognize that even if these types of dreams in which God is speaking to us in some form or another, even if that's outside the realm of our own personal experience, we shouldn't just automatically dismiss it. So here in this passage, we see an angel appearing to, to Joseph in a dream. And he starts by telling Joseph about this baby in Mary's womb. He says, okay, this baby did not come from any other man. It is the Holy Spirit, God himself, who conceived this, this little baby in Mary. And he says, therefore, you should take Mary home as your wife. Complete the marriage process with her. And then this angel tells, Mary, or tells Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus. So God is essentially naming this child in Mary's womb. And I think, I think about that and I compare that with the process that Shelley and I have gone through in naming our kids. And I think, man, it would be kind of nice if God just gave us a name. Because I don't know about you, for you who are parents, but for me and Shelley, naming our kids was a very daunting task. 
Because you think about it, a name is a part of a person's identity that really sticks with them throughout their lives. And it's a big deal to pick out a name for some kid that you've never met, and that name's going to stick with them for a long, long time. I mean, that's, that's pretty scary, pretty daunting, pretty major. And, I mean, for Micaiah's name, I mean, it kind of came to us. Basically, his name is this Ethiopian name, Mikias, and all we did was change the pronunciation of it, kept the spelling. For Tehillah, um, it was really just about a year ago that we were going through the process of naming her. It was uh, last Thanksgiving, actually, that my parents were in town. We'd been trying to figure out a name for her for months, uh, but we knew we were reaching crunch time here. We're, th- we're within probably a month of going over to pick her up from China and bring her home. We were getting pressure from family members to figure out a name for her soon because they wanted to put their Christmas cards together and they wanted a name rather than just this little girl. And, and so we were trying to figure out a name for her. We wanted something that was kind of unique because, you know, Micaiah is kind of unique and well, let's just continue the unique trend. And, and we wanted something that had some rich spiritual meaning. And we were, just, we were struggling. So on Thanksgiving weekend, my parents were in town. They volunteered to watch Micaiah so Shelley and I could go on a date. And we went to a restaurant and spent the entire time trying to figure out what to name our daughter. And that night at that meal, we settled on a name that we were really excited about, the name Tehillah, which is a Hebrew word that means song of praise. Now, we were all excited about this. And one of the things we were thinking was, well, not only is it kind of unique, not only is it rich in meaning, but... You know, it's probably a little bit easier for people to remember and to pronounce than her Chinese name, which is Yixing, with a Q in the middle. Um, we kept that as their middle name. And we thought, okay, Tehillah is surely a little bit easier, but we're realizing it's not super easy even still, because still on a regular basis, people are calling our daughter Tequila. And we knew that could be an issue. We even talked about that in the restaurant, and we wouldn't change it by any means. But what a, what a process to go through in naming a child. But for Mary and Joseph, they didn't have the challenge of that process because God gave them a name. Because the child who was in Mary's womb was actually fathered by God himself. God was naming his own son, and he named him Jesus. Now, Jesus back in that culture was a very common name. Uh, let me give you a little bit of the background of this name Jesus. You already heard a little bit about it from uh, Pastor David's children's message. Jesus is the English translation of a Greek name, Jesus. Jesus is a Greek translation of the Hebrew and Aramaic, Aramaic name, Yeshua. And Yeshua is uh, the, the Hebrew and Aramaic version of what we know as Joshua. So really, if you look at that equation there, Jesus is equivalent to Joshua in terms of their name. Um, Jesus is just the New Testament uh, Greek version of the Hebrew and Aramaic uh, name Joshua. Now you may be wondering, okay, what's this Hebrew and Aramaic? Uh, Hebrew was the language that was spoken by Jews for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's what the Old Testament is primarily written in. Aramaic occurs a few times in the Old Testament, actually a couple times in the New Testament too. It was probably the predominant language in Israel at the time of Jesus. There was still a decent amount of Hebrew spoken, and also Greek was understood by a lot of people. But odds are good when this angel was speaking to Joseph, he was probably speaking in Aramaic. And the name that he probably gave Jesus there was not actually Jesus in Greek, but probably Yeshua. Now again, Jesus and Joshua are basically equivalent names, and and. The reason why this name was so popular 
was because of who Yeshua or Joshua was back in Old Testament times. See, Joshua was a leader of Israel. He was the successor of Moses who led Israel into the promised land after they had wandered for 40 years in the desert. Joshua has a book of the Old Testament named after him. And he was a very brave man, a courageous man, who was also very faithful to God. And so what good Israelite would not want to name their child after this great man, Joshua? And so Joshua, and then it forms Yeshua and Jesus, was a very, very common name in that New Testament era. It's kind of like the equivalent of Gary or Bob or Joe today. Or if you look at younger kids, the equivalent of like a Mason or an Ethan or an Aiden. Names that are very, very popular. It is so popular that if we look at the rest of the New Testament, there are actually three other Jesuses in the New Testament. Three other people with the same name. Uh, you look at the high priests of Judaism during that time. There were, there were 12 high priests of ancient Israel during the first century. Four of those 12 had Jesus as part of their name. So it was an extremely familiar name, and that's one of the reasons why when you read, when you read these biographies of Jesus in Scripture, that's why he, he is oftentimes referred to as Jesus of Nazareth in order to differentiate him from all these other Jesuses who are out there. Now there's something very interesting that happens just a few decades after Jesus of Nazareth lives, dies, and is resurrected. The name Jesus and Yeshua, those names they completely stop being used. Parents stop naming their children Yeshua or Jesus. I mean, it's pretty remarkable to go over the course of just a few decades from being the most popular name to not being used at all. But this is a testimony to the power of Jesus' name because for Christians, the names Jesus and Yeshua, they were too sacred to use for their children. I mean, there were a lot of other good names they could use, but not that name because of who Jesus Christ is. For those who aren't Christians, especially Jews, who rejected Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, this name was too ugly. They didn't like what this name was associated with. They felt like that name, Jesus or Yeshua, was tarnished because of who Jesus of Nazareth was and because of what Christians said he was all about. And so, amazingly, by the end of the first century, you can't find any more record of people... Um, with that name. I mean, you look at census data, it's not there. You look at, uh, at ancient court documents, it's not there. You look at letters that we have that still exist, it's not there. You look at inscriptions on, on tombs, by the end of the first century, you aren't seeing any more of those because people are no longer using that name and it's that case for several hundred years. It's because of this Jesus that we read about in Scripture. Now, Jesus was a very common name, but it's also a very meaningful and rich name. The angel tells Joseph, you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, the name Yeshua, it literally means the Lord saves. Another way to translate that is Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh was the name of God, the most intimate and powerful and personal name of God throughout the Old Testament uh, in the Jewish world. It's saying Yahweh is salvation. The Lord he saves. And, and that's very clear. That's the reason why God gave Jesus that name. Because Jesus means the Lord saves. And so he's given that name, quote, because he will save his people from their sins. 
Now, when we look back on, on the people living in ancient Israel at that time, many of them were expecting a Messiah to come from God to bring deliverance. But they weren't expecting the type of deliverance that this Jesus would bring. They weren't necessarily expecting deliverance from sins. They were looking for a Messiah who would deliver them politically. They were looking for a Messiah like you read about in the book Zealot, who, who would overthrow the Roman Empire and, and establish freedom for the Israelites. And, and I think it's easy here in the 21st century to look back and kind of ridicule those Jews, to kind of mock them and wonder, what were you guys thinking? Why couldn't you tell? He's such a special guy. Why couldn't you tell he's the Messiah? But I think we need to put ourselves back in their shoes and give them a little bit of grace in this matter. Because you think about their culture. They were living in a place that was under, they were under significant oppression from the Roman government. I mean, even, even their high priest, even what took place in the Jewish temple was in various ways influenced and from some perspectives tarnished because of the Roman influence there. And they were, they were taxed like crazy by the Roman Empire. And so they wanted to get out from under that oppression. And you look back, back at Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, there are a lot of prophecies about the Messiah being a ruler. Let me give you a couple examples. One is from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, we read it last week. It's a very common passage around this time of year to read. But as I read it, listen to how the first century uh, Jews may have interpreted this, may have heard it in their context of being oppressed. Speaking about the Messiah, and it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So Isaiah is telling about the coming Messiah who's going to have a government that he's going to put into place. He's going to reign on King David's throne and it's going to be a government that's based on peace and righteousness and justice. And so they're looking for a ruler who would come. You flip over to the book of Micah, another Old Testament prophet. Micah also uh, is talking about the coming ruler. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It's speaking of, of Bethlehem here, which we sang about earlier. It says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient days. And so we see here, again, that there's a ruler who's coming. And, and these Jews in the first centuries are looking to a, for a Messiah. They're really grasping on to this idea of a ruler who will set up a government. And they want this ruler to overthrow the Roman Empire's influence in Israel. And even this idea of salvation, about the Lord saves, their interpretation of salvation is different than what God's was here in Matthew chapter 1. Because the word salvation, whether it's in Hebrew or in Aramaic or in Greek, the word salvation or to save is a very broad term. I mean, it's oftentimes used in the Old Testament of God delivering people from oppression or from pain or from difficult circumstances. So it has this general sense of deliverance. And it can specifically refer to, to deliverance from sins, but that's not the main way that these first century Jews interpreted it. What they did was they were right that there would be a ruler coming, but they missed out 
on the path that that ruler would take before he established his throne. Because King Jesus, when he came into this world, he suffered and died first. And this was something completely contradictory to their way of thinking. They missed out on some of the other Old Testament prophecy, for instance, from Isaiah 53, telling about the coming Messiah. And it said, surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this also is Old Testament prophecy. The same Isaiah who told about a coming ruler who had ran on David's throne is also talking about how this coming Messiah is going to suffer on behalf of his people. And the first century Jews failed to put those two strands together. We know that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords and that one day every knee is going to bow before him and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. But the path that he took to get there was a path of suffering and even of death on the cross. But he did it to save his people from their sins. That's, that's why he's named Jesus. Now, this is exactly how Jesus understood his mission. He knew that he came to save people from their sins. You look, for instance, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, one of Jesus' first statements in his public ministry, he said, the time has come, the kingdom is near, repent and believe the good news. This idea of repentance is the idea of turning from our own sin and turning to follow God. So Jesus, he sees his ministry as one of calling people to repentance to follow God. A little bit later in Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus is in a debate with some Jewish leaders. He's just healed someone. They say, okay, what are you doing here? And he begins to talk about how he has the authority not, not only to heal, but also to forgive sins. Now, we can all forgive people's sins when they sin against us, but Jesus here is saying he has authority to, get, to forgive anyone's sins Regardless of whether the sin was against him or someone else or whoever, he's saying, I have authority to forgive all sins. That has a pretty outstanding statement there. Go to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. You have what could be called the mission statement of Jesus. He said, the Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He saw that he was going to lay down his life to pay the death penalty that people deserve for their sins. Fast forward a little bit more to the night before Jesus was crucified, the last supper with his disciples. He's instituting what we know now as the Lord's Supper, where he gave them bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. And he gave them a cup of wine and said, this is, the new, this is a cup of the new covenant and my blood. My blood is going to be poured out, he said, for the forgiveness of sins. He knew that the reason he di he's dying is not as an insurrectionist, which is what Zealot tries to say. He was dying to pay the penalty for people's sins. And then in Luke chapter 24, in the Great Commission, when Jesus is, is sending out his disciples, both then and even up until today's time, he's sending them out to proclaim the gospel. He says that part of proclaiming the gospel is that, that, that the forgiveness of sins in Christ's name will be proclaimed to all nations. So Jesus was very, very clear that his mission was to save people from their sins. Now, when we're talking about this idea of sin, especially in today's culture, it's a topic that's oftentimes ridiculed. If you try to talk with someone about sin in their life, if you try to say, you know what, 
the Bible says that you are sinful, all sin and fall short of the glory of God, there are a lot of people who just kind of laugh at you and say, don't talk with me about sin. You know, I'm not that bad. I haven't murdered anyone. Um, you compare me with a lot of other people out there, I'm a lot better than most people out there. This is the common response you'll oftentimes get if you talk with people about sin. But here's the thing. It's a messed up way of thinking. Number one, a lot of people, when you talk about sin, they say, well, I'm not that bad because I haven't murdered anyone. I mean, that's a pretty messed up um, form of, of comparison when you say, okay, as long as I haven't murdered anyone, I'm doing all right. There's a, that's not quite right. And then our, our, our other thing is that we compare ourselves with others. But we need to recognize that when we compare ourselves with others, we'll almost always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We'll look at our good side, put ourselves up on a pedestal, and we'll look at the bad side of other people around us. And pretty much anyone, when they compare themselves with others in terms of how good they are, they'll think they, they're better than the majority of people. But we need to recognize that our comparison is not with other people. Our comparison, the standard that we're looking at, is God himself. And that creates a problem because God is holy, he is perfect, he is righteous, and we are not. And so we need to recognize that sin is a very big issue. And even for people who deny uh, the significance of sin, they cannot deny the effects of sin. Because any sort of pain that we experience in our lives, any sort of broken relationships, any sort of heartache, any sort of even diseases or natural disasters, either directly or indirectly, can trace their origin to sin. sin. Sin is such a significant aspect of our lives. And Jesus came so that we could be freed from the effects and the consequences of sin. He came to save his people from their sins. Now today, in closing, I want to do a little activity, a little exercise together to help us to, to remember in a more powerful way why Jesus came. In the pews or the chairs around you, there are sheets of paper like this. Look in the pew in, the pew in front of you, uh, where the hymnals are in front of you. Um, if you can't find one, just grab one uh, from right behind you or something. There should be some in pretty much all the pews here. I want you to grab one of these sheets of paper. On the top it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then there's a statement here that says, I have committed the following sins in the past or the present. And then circle all that apply. And you have a, a nice range of potential sins here. What I'd like you to do over the next few minutes is to grab a pen or a pencil and on this sheet of paper, circle every one of these things that has been a part of your life, either in the past or in the present. Now, I recognize this might be a bit of a convicting thing. Uh, we're not going to ask you to share this publicly. No human eyes, as far as I know, are ever going to see this. But what we're going to ask you to do is to bring these sheets of paper to the front. Fold them up, bring them up here, and here we have a little manger, perhaps like the one that Jesus was in. And in here is a box with a hole in the top. I'm going to ask you to bring these up here after you circle the ones that characterize you and put this in the box as a symbolic way of remembering that Jesus came to take our sins upon himself so that we could be set free. Also in the manger here is a cross. And the cross is symbolic of the fact that when Jesus came, he came with a mission to, to, to die in order to forgive us of our sins. So I want to encourage you to do this. Do it reflectively. Confess sin as you do this. Do it with a thankful heart, recognizing what Jesus has done for you. And during this time, there will be music quietly playing in the background. So when you're done with that, bring it on up here and put it in the box. 
Afterwards, the box will be thrown away. Um, it's already sealed shut, so no one will ever see it. But it's between you and God uh, to reflect on what Jesus has done for us. Kind of a convicting process, isn't it? I mean, to look on that sheet of paper and, I mean, I know for myself to circle vast majority of those things. But I think we have to understand the bad news in order to understand the good news of what Jesus has done for us. He came to save us from our sins. Listen to the good news that John, one of Jesus' disciples, writes in 1 John chapter 1. He says that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus came to die so that he could pay the penalty we deserve for our sins. It's the best gift that can ever be given. And Jesus has already given it. Salvation is an offer that is out there for anyone and everyone who will receive that gift. Now, I think this process of bringing this list of our sins up here is kind of symbolic for how a person receives salvation. You basically bring your sins to Christ and say, Jesus, I can't do it on my own. I, I can't earn favor in God's eyes by my own good works. I need you to do it for me. That's the essence of what it means to receive salvation. I mean, think about Christmas morning. You can have a great gift under the tree that's all nicely wrapped, and you can be all excited about it. But if you don't actually open it up and make use of what's inside of it, the gift does you practically no good. It's the same with salvation. That If it's just a good gift that you leave abstractly out there and you don't actually make it your own, it doesn't really do you all that much good. You don't actually have salvation then. But the invitation is here for all of us to bring ourselves and bring our sins to Christ and say, Jesus, these are yours. Thank you for taking them for me to the cross. I want to give myself to you now. That's how we get salvation. Now you think about if you were asked to, to put into two words the most important truth in human history, the most important truth in the world, put it in two words, what would you say? I think I'd probably say Jesus saves. And evidently, God wanted to say something very similar because when God told Joseph to name this little baby Jesus, he wanted to make it completely clear for everyone down through history that Jesus came so that we could have salvation through him. We need to remember the words of Peter in, first, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, when he said, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men and women by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to this world. You came with a mission to bring salvation to those of us who were, who were lost sheep, who were wandering, who were astray, who had rebelled against you. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't just come on a mission, but you fully accomplished that mission on the cross. You cried out, it is finished. And now all we need to do is receive that gift. Lord, we, we thank you for the gift of salvation. I pray that each one of us, not only in this Christmas season, but certainly beyond, will embrace that gift with wholeheartedness and follow you in the new life that you offer us through faith in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.